This is Make Something Cool. I'm Alex Sugg. Today, I am really, really excited to be sitting down with Steph Baron Hall of NineTypes.co. And she is an expert in all things Enneagram. And I know a lot of my listeners love the Enneagram. And if you are unfamiliar with what the Enneagram is, this will be an awesome place to start. So Steph, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, definitely. I'm a huge fan of the Enneagram and I've been, my wife and I got really into it, I would say like five or six years ago. And it's been a really helpful tool for me individually. And I know it's been a really helpful tool to many, but I think it's always helpful because it can, there's like, uh, if you look it up, there are kind of these scary images of like these crazy lines connecting to each other and no, it's really hard to kind of depict what it is. Can you just give a very high level explanation of what the Enneagram is just to, to give people that foundation? Yeah. So the Enneagram is in the best way to describe it is that it's a personality tool um, or framework oriented around nine core types. So what makes it really interesting is that it's really about the core motivation or, or what's under the surface beneath our outer behavior. So that's what makes it really different from a lot of the other tools that you might have heard of like DISC or MBTI. And so it's really different in that sense. And then we have nine archetypes, each oriented around one of those motivations. And when we start to kind of delve into it, we can start to understand ourselves. And it's just a tool for personal growth and self-awareness and and really bringing to light some of the things that we typically don't want to look at, which is why sometimes I think people are scared off by it. But it's one of the reasons that I love it. Yeah. How did you first encounter it? Well, I'd always loved personality anything, basically. And my husband actually was like, hey, you would really like this. And of course, I brushed it off because at the time I was using a different personality tool in my workplace. And Mm. then a few months later, my older sister said, hey, you have to take this, you know? So she just sent me a link really quick and I took it and then I was off. Yeah, I think that's everyone's story. It's it's kind of... I have some friends who have like encountered it and they take a test or they read about it and they're like off to the races and they're like, whoa, I've never felt so incredibly seen before. And then there are other types who it takes a little bit longer. And there's like a level of like my brother's a great example. He's like a total skeptic of systems and things like this to where it takes a little bit more uh, massaging <laughs> to get to get to the core of it. And I think that's probably aligned with his his type, if you will. But yeah, I mean, I think I do want to get to like, you know, maybe a skeptical's uh, side of like what maybe a skeptic, how they could approach this. But we can get to that later. I think maybe to start here, can we just run through the nine types and maybe give a very high level explanation of what each one, you said an avatar of each one or like an archetype? Archetype. Yeah. archetype. Uh-huh. Yes. Can we just run through those real quick? Sure. So we will start with type one, though I have to say that when I teach the Enneagram, I don't typically start with type one and ones get so frustrated yeah. <laughs> with, with that dynamic. But so yeah, so type one is really motivated by this need to be good, right, and correct. But it's not about being good at things. It's it's more so about being a good and ethical, moral person according to their own perspective of what that looks like or what that means. So, you know, a lot of ones, they're not necessarily always rule followers, but they follow their specific rules that they have improved to make them a little bit better. So they follow their rules. Type twos are oriented around this need to 
be loved, wanted, and needed, and they really find their worth and their value in how likable and lovable other people find them. So they really build positive rapport with people. A lot of the time they're called the giver or the helper, but I find that it's not necessarily always in the stereotypical, let me just bring you a casserole type of giving or helping. It's it's more so in giving love, giving affection, giving positive care, encouragement, those sorts of things. Then type threes are oriented around really this need to be successful and to find their worth and their value in their productivity. Early Mm. on, threes learn, okay, if I perform well, people really like that and I get good feedback. And so they kind of place all of their worth and value into that and really over-identify with their external results and performance and believe that if other people think I'm great, that means I'm great. So you can see some similarity between two and three there. And I'm curious now, do you know your type? You do. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I will save that because I want to know okay. yours too, but let's okay. save it till the end. <laughs> um, so type fours are really motivated by this need to to really find and express their truest identity. So they are really plumbing the depths of their psyche. They're very introspective. They're really looking deeper and deeper, trying to pull back the layers and uncover things. And what's really interesting about fours is that there are definitely other types who long for that sense of self-knowledge. But for fours, it's really kind of this concept of like, there's always more there. So they they lean into all of the emotion, all of the introspection, anything like that they possibly can. And when we talk about skeptics, you know, fours sometimes can be quite skeptical because they say, oh, I don't want to be put in a box. And also I find that once fours get into something like the Enneagram, they just become obsessed because it is so... There's so much to know and there's so much complexity. There's so much to learn. They just love it. And they they tend to identify with all of their different parts of their type. Mm. And then we have fives. So fives are motivated by this need to be competent and self-sufficient. And so they really want to be capable of taking care of themselves without needing anything from anyone else, which means that sometimes fives really decrease the amount that they need from the world and they gather a lot of knowledge and and information and data, and they really remove themselves from any sort of emotional realm, even though they have that, but they they remove themselves, create space so that they can process through information and keep themselves in this very, um, in some ways, isolated, but very steady, objective, self-sufficient existence. Mm. Then we have sixes who there are different types of sixes. There are different types of all of these. There's a lot more complexity there, but in particular with sixes, all sixes are really motivated by this need to find security and certainty. So that's Mm. what they're really after. They want to feel certain. A lot of sixes though do so by planning ahead. They kind of think ahead, okay, what what might happen? They have like a spidey sense for for what's going to happen in the world. And then they make plans and they try to to make sure that doesn't happen. But some sixes, instead of doing it that way, they go at their fear full force and try to scare off the fear. So Mm. for example, like a stereotypical example could be like a six who is afraid of heights and goes skydiving because they want to conquer it. Mm. Then we have sevens who are motivated by the need to be free to explore the world of possibilities. So they really want to, you know, find what is out there, like what can exist. And they just believe that anything is possible. They have this vast imagination and they just kind of go after everything. And so they really are fleeing an inner sense of worry or or fear 
or anxiety, but they tend to be very enthusiastic and fun because they just believe that things are possible, that things can happen, and they go out there and they make it happen. Then we have eights who are motivated by the need to be against. And it's not against in the sense of being contrarian, but it's against in the sense of um, really pushing back, like wanting to say, okay, you can't conquer me. You can't control me. You can't overtake me or be more powerful than I am. So they have this strength and toughness. And so they push back on things. And a lot of the time, you know, when you say something to an eight, they immediately deny it. (laughs) No, they like kind of push back. But I think eights kind of get a bad reputation, but I, I love eights personally (laughs) because they're, I've heard, you know, one of my teachers, Beatrice Chestnut, she says eights are like a marshmallow wrapped in barbed wire. And then Mm -hmm. nines, who we'll talk about (laughs) next, are the opposite. I like that. So nines are motivated by this need to be at peace internally and externally. They really want this comfortable, peaceful, balanced space. They really like things to be balanced and for everything to kind of work together really well in harmony. They try to create that by turning things down. So a lot of the time they end up turning down their own inner voice and kind of distancing themselves even from the people around them in a sense. Um, Even though they care a lot about that connection, Mm. they really kind of turn everything, turn the volume down on everything so that they can feel more peaceful. And a lot of the time they end up at least externally merging with other people and saying, okay, you know, well, I'll just go along with what you think or what you want. But like I said, they are the opposite of eights. So they are barbed wire inside and marshmallow outside. So they deep down have like this stubbornness where they, you actually can't really force a nine to do anything. Mm. Um, So I think nines are are pretty great for that too. Yeah. All right. There's so much there. Um, I'll go first. Uh, You paused when you asked me what my number was at the exact Mm -hmm. moment you asked me and I am, I'm a three Mm -hmm. and you pause right there. You're like, do you know what number you are? And maybe you, maybe you have a spidey sense because you're a teacher about the stuff that you could see that about me or know that. Um, yeah, I'm a three. I would say I have a gigantic four wing. We can get into the wings uh, to describe that later um, to where I feel like I'm constantly flip-flopping between these two worlds of this deep desire to be authentic in my four self and then this deep desire to succeed externally in my three self. And it's uh, a very... Uh, torturous combination <laughs> that are at odds Indeed. with each other. Are you the same? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I, the reason I paused there was because when I started describing it, it was the look on your face was very like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I resonate with it, but I think especially as threes. And I'd be curious to hear about when you first found your type, because for me initially, you know, it popped up on the screen said the achiever. And I was like, yes, score. Like I won. And then pretty soon thereafter, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exposing. I do not want people to know this about me. For sure. Yeah. It's by far like the most like naked I've felt is when I first realized, like I remember listening, uh, my wife, um, maybe we first discovered in like 2016 or 2017, Ian Cron wrote uh, the book, Road Back to You, very famous Enneagram book now, but she was listening to a podcast about it. And I remember being so feeling so exposed. She was in a different room than me entirely. And I just heard them, the podcast going, and I literally yelled to the other room, like, Jay, I need you to turn that off. Like it's, it was bothering me so much because I was like, Oh my God, they're talking about me in a way that I've never like felt this exposed even to myself before. And I think that's especially true of threes because we're very good at, uh, 
telling ourselves certain stories to protect ourselves and things like that. I think all, all the types are, but threes especially, uh, we're pros at it. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and, you know, all of these are, are strategies really that we use to get our needs met. It's kind right. of how I like to think about them. And for a type three, especially, there's kind of that belief like I am what I do or I am as others see me. And so we don't even realize that we're doing it. We don't even yeah. realize that we're crafting this this picture perfect image of who we'd like to be seen as. Yeah. And then when we learn the Enneagram, we're like, oh no, people can people can see me. Yeah. I, I, I'm excited. I don't get to meet many threes, at least ones that know what the Enneagram is and know enough to talk about it. So I want to nerd out here for a bit because I've actually, to be quite honest, I feel like I've kind of stepped away. That's why I was partially excited to talk to you is because I feel like I've stepped away from the Enneagram the past couple of years a lot in a big way because I, I felt like, and I think um, my a lot of my friends would be like, all right, Alex, you're just being a big baby. But I do feel like most of the time when, and for listeners who are still getting familiar with the Enneagram, please forgive me for going deep on this, but you will catch up, I promise. For th- being a three, I've experienced most of the time when people find out my number, it's usually met with a negative connotation because there's this sense that threes are fake, phony, uh, doing whatever it takes. We'll, we'll stab people in the back to reach success. There are all these like not great connotations with it um, where I feel like I've encountered that so many times with people who are aware enough with the Enneagram or they'll or someone will be like, you don't seem like a three, like it's a bad thing or something. <laughs> um, and so eventually I feel like enough of these experiences, I've kind of like distanced myself from it because I feel like uh, it makes me kind of feel worse in certain like social settings, whereas a tool for myself, it's really useful still. I don't have you ever encountered that? Have you ever felt that? Yeah. Definitely. And and I think especially doing what I do so I talk about it a lot on Instagram obviously and I, it's it's really challenging I think. Um I was just talking about this with with somebody else but recently I shared on Instagram, okay, you know, if you for this subset of people like subscribers or whatever you know, you get to ask these questions, but you know, this question sticker is for this other type of question. Really, really. So like trying to set up revenue streams for myself, right? Because for so long, I really believed that notion. I was like, oh, as a three, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm too materialistic or shallow Mm -hmm. or competitive. And so I just did so many things for free, just out of fear, you know? And somebody responded to that and said, of course you would do that. You're such a three, blah, 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 blah. I didn't even have to look at what type you were, like all these things, you know? Um, And so really, you know, having that negative perspective. And I've actually heard that, that concept of, of how people will push back on that and, and, and put you in this bucket just based on being a three. And it's really frustrating and really challenging because for me, I know that's not my perspective or how I am. And and like you're saying, I think that it can be really frustrating for it to be used in that way and to be so weaponized against certain types. Mm. And also I think threes are particularly sensitive to that type of feedback, like really believing it. Like it's easy for me to just be like, oh, if that's how you think about me, then that's how I am. And in fact, no, like, right. you know, and so even with that person being like, actually, 
it's because I run a business. It's not because I'm a three. It's because this is a business and kind of shifting that perspective. But it really put me in a funk for a while because I was like, wait, do people really think that about me? And so that I think could be frustrating and it really does turn people off. And one of the ways, you know, that I have thought about that is there aren't very many people on Instagram who are teaching the Enneagram in the way that I do, who are also threes. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, I, I think there tend to be a lot more fours or twos. And so I kind of see it as my place to, to give a different perspective in a way on what a three actually is, what a three actually looks like, what that actually means and how much depth and emotionality there actually is behind the type. Just because other people aren't seeing it doesn't mean it's not there. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's important to say like everything you're saying resonates big time, but I think it's important to say like every type has their, you know, cartoon version of, of what it looks like to other people that it could be. I th- I love that you use the term weaponized because I do think that that happens all the time. It becomes like a parlor trick where it's like, oh, you're a seven, you're an eight. So this makes you A, B, and C, but it's like way more complex than that. Yeah. But I think with like the three, what I can speak on is like, and what I've tried in the past, and it, and it only comes through with like a little bit of time and patience and actually, you know, building enough relationship with someone to talk through it is like so much of like a three, a three striving. It comes from like this deep well of insecurity and it just keep it comes from this deep well. Um, and when you really zoom out, it's like it's hard to feel bad for threes, too, because it's like, well, you're just doing all this stuff and you're always moving and you're always doing good things or whatever. But when you kind of look under the hood and it's like you're kind of this hamster on a wheel just looking for ways to get love. If you're not like mindfully aware of like, why am I doing the things I'm doing? It literally feels like the only way to get love and worthiness is by contributing big stuff to the world or whatever. And that is crazy. Like that's to be a human and to have that being your motivator constantly. Like it's actually... For me, and I, of course, you know, hearing you talk about it too, I have a lot of empathy for fellow threes Um, and I have empathy for all of the types because everyone has their thing or whatever. But I think that's really important to note is like, yeah, like whatever you see on the outside, it's very much like probably a projection of some level of insecurity. And when you do, quote unquote, do the work and when you learn about it more and more, you can be the healthy version, which is awesome. And you can feel great about who you are and all that stuff. But it's not, yeah, it hasn't been a great feeling for a couple of years. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that sense of, oh, I'm never doing enough can be such a strong motivator mm. for threes. And and I think too, to your point earlier, you know, not knowing a lot of threes who are really into the Enneagram, in a lot of ways, I do talk with people sometimes who they're like, okay, sure, I'm a three, but like, why would I want to change any of this? It's all working for me really well. Mm. And it does work well until you hit like burnout or failure or these other things. And then you have to really look at yourself. But it's those glimmers of just like sitting down and realizing, oh, I am enough as I am. I don't have to hustle for that. I don't have to make other people see me as worthy. They can think I'm like garbage and it doesn't matter because I know that I'm enough Mm. and changing that I think can be so powerful, but it takes so much effort to unlearn the messages that we've always believed. Yeah. How do you handle failure? Oh, I hate it. (laughs) Who likes it? (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I, I also think 
perhaps I see it differently now. I think initially when I started my Instagram account um, five years ago, actually, but really started posting about the Enneagram in 2018, 2019, I, um, I think a lot of it was, I felt like failure anytime somebody left a comment that wasn't, you know, glowing and positive, right? But doing it for this long, I don't see it that way anymore. Like that, that feels like, oh, that's just like another day and and everyone gets to have their own opinion and it's fine, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and moving through that, I, though other types of failure, I think are still really challenging. I mean, they, they always are. And so what I try to go back to is like, what am I making this mean about me? And is that actually true? And most of the time, the message that I am really internalizing is not true, Mm. you know, And, and there's all this fear of, you know, just fear of failure, fear of being worthless, fear of just kind of dissolving into nothing if I stop being so busy all the time and knowing that that's not true, right? Like knowing that I will be okay if I'm not so busy all the time and then actually taking action and integrating that into my regular day-to-day life. I think that's helpful, but, but yeah, I, I don't like failure, Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm intentionally desensitizing myself to it. Yeah. I feel the same. It's like, cause I, for people who are still learning it, like, Failure, fear of failure is like the ultimate driver for a three is like, I do whatever I do. I do not want to fail, especially like publicly. So if you feel like, you know, negative comments on your posts or whatever, like that's about as public as it gets and you're, and you have to grapple with those feelings big time. Okay. We can move on from threeness. I know everyone's getting, getting bored if you're not a three, but got to shout out the threes. Cause it's rare that it, there are two on a call together. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. um, I'm curious, like I'm thinking of people who can approach this and maybe even the way we're talking about it, someone might be listening and they're like, this is kind of mushy, a little woo woo. Like how do you talk to skeptics who approach the Enneagram and like, how, how would you, how do you approach it with somebody who's like coming in with like some pretty big questions? I mean, there are lots of mysteries around its origin still. There's lots of mystery kind of surrounding it, but I'm curious how you approach that. Yeah. I mean, bring it on, you know, like that's part of what I think makes it interesting. And also, you know, I've definitely been, so I, I do a lot of teaching in organizations, teams, different things like that. And I always have a Q&A portion because I really want people to be able to discuss what they're learning. Mm. And I I somewhat regularly get the question like, do you ever think that this is like just all bullshit, basically? Like, do you ever just think that this is all made up? And my answer is sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like sometimes I do. And and I think there's a little part of me that that is, in general, I can be a skeptic on any personality, anything I look for, what doesn't fit initially. But part of me, there's like something deep inside that I'm like, but it would be kind of cool if I was like an Enneagram teacher. And then I turned into an Enneagram skeptic and I was like <laughs> anti, you know, like, I really resonate actually, with that. Yeah, I really resonate. Like, I just want to walk the line, you know, like um, you're, you're like the, what's, what's her name? She did like the Scientology documentaries on, she was a yeah, Scientologist. Yeah. Like yeah. You're, you're that mm-hmm. for the, <laughs> There is something like heroic and cool about that, but it's good. Yeah. It still works. That's the funny part. So, right. Or, or you see, um, you know, people who were, you know, online course gurus or mm. whatever, and then now are like the whole online business world is a sham, essentially, right. you know, like making that, that 
declaration or, or that switch. But I think what I keep going back to and what keeps me kind of interested in it is just seeing how useful it is for my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And, and really, it's just a tool for reflection. It doesn't have to be the tool that everyone uses. I find that it's the tool that has hit home most for me. Mm. And so there's always something for me to to reflect on and to understand about myself. And when I say tool for re- reflection, what I mean is looking at your type. And um, once you actually find you know your your true type, looking at your type and saying, okay, it says this about me. I've mm. never noticed that before, but is that true of me? And if it is, you know, great. You can think about it. You can process it. If it's not, that's fine too. Like you can move on from it, but it's, it's using that, using it really as self-inquiry mm. rather than, than assigning those things and internalizing them, using it to inspire that observation. Because the observation is kind of the point of this entire thing. It's not just a way to, you know, label each other, label ourselves. It's really a way to observe ourselves and observe one another and recognize things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see just because we didn't have them pointed out so clearly. Mm. And so I think that's why it's so powerful. I also find that a lot of the time people are very skeptical about the Enneagram when they don't find their true type and they just take a random online test and they're like, cool, on to the next and don't actually take the time to ponder it. Yeah. There's a lot there. I do think like it's probably worth noting for like online tests, I don't know if they're the best way of finding your type. Because I think in so many ways, like we all like to think we're objective, but I think a lot of people will be filling out one of these Enneagram tests and they are kind of projecting more of who they think they are or want to be maybe versus Mm -hmm. what's real. And then you get these results where you're kind of like, huh, this doesn't really resonate. This is probably all, it's just another, you know, astrology. This is just kind of BS or whatever, (laughs) whatever people think. But uh, that's, if you, if you're not careful, that's how you can kind of land on bad results. Do you, what's the best way would you say for people to find their type? Yeah. I used to be team Mm anti-test, but now I am more accepting of them only because I found that without an assessment of some sort, people generally don't know where to start. Right. So I say, take, you know, whatever assessment, um, there are a couple that I recommend. I like the Truity one. Um, if you're looking for one that's free, I like the CP Enneagram compass assessment. I also like the IEQ nine. Those latter two though are, are more expensive. So a lot of the time people just go for the Truity assessment, but the IQ nine. So the, the producer of this podcast, Josh, he's also an Enneagram trained. He's actually how you and I connected. Mm-hmm. He, he gave me the IEQ nine. We went through it and that thing is in depth. It's intense. There's a lot of information there. It's really cool. It is. It's so interesting. So fascinating. And I, um, the compass assessment from CP Enneagram, I think is similar in, in some ways. And you know, also has like a lot of really great info. So I think both of those are are basically the top ones, I'd say. But, you know, like I said, they're, they are in that pricier range. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I say check out those top three results. If your top three results are really similar, then check out maybe the top four mm. and just read about them. Like look deeper, look, there are a lot of great Enneagram websites for 
finding your Enneagram type, I would not recommend going on Instagram and just scrolling through because there's a lot of the psychodynamic part that's missing when you Mm. look at that, because essentially it's content marketing, right? So it's not going as in depth as you would really need it to, to be able to understand your type. But of course, if you do take something like the IEQ9, you're going to get a direct result and it will probably be a lot more accurate than some of the free tests. Mm. But with that said, you know, so kind of investigating those top three types, narrowing it down, maybe you can eliminate one, then going and listening to podcast interviews with the types or um, panels with the nine types. I think those can be really useful because hearing yourself described from somebody else, kind of like what you were saying earlier about hearing it on a podcast, it's just, oh, wow, that's so clarifying. You know, you can, you're like, wow, that person just said my thoughts out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that can be really helpful. So typically digging into that is useful as well as looking at into the subtypes, which is a whole different uh, ballpark, but yeah. We need, we'll get to subtypes. I do want to talk about them. That's probably near the end because we still, I still want to discuss the the foundation. Because one thing we haven't really touched on that I think is really powerful about the Enneagram is that it's, and I think why I liked it because I'm normally a very skeptical guy with all this type of stuff. But I think why I liked the Enneagram is because it's very dynamic in that it gives you these two loose kind of directions, one for stress and one for strength. Those terms might be wrong. Can you correct me if I'm wrong on those? Or would you use different words? Well, in general, I I use the arrows a little bit differently. Okay. And I see them both as stress and, you know, growth mm. arrows. So you can access either arrow, either direction. And when I say arrow, what we're talking about is the lines that you're connected to on the Enneagram symbol. So if you look at the Enneagram symbol itself, you'll see your type. So, you know, we're both talking about three today. So look at type three, and then you'll see the connection line to nine and the connection line to six. And so in general, I say when we are just operating like on autopilot, unconscious to, you know, not actually unconscious, but not aware of ourselves, we're mm-hmm. tired, we're stressed, etc. We can access the unhealthy side of both six and nine. And then when we're actively like working on it, we're conscious, we're aware, we're growing, all these different things, we can access the healthy side of both six and nine. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Is that a little edgy? Or is that a you know, is that an edgy take? Because the way I learned it originally was, and I've I've I think I more agree with you now in my take of it, but for a long time is like, well, as a three, you go to nine in stress, which means uh, you just want to like numb out, go to sleep. Like when I like am arguing, like getting into an argument with my wife, or if I'm trying to deal with some big issue, I just like, get really tired. I get very exhausted and I just kind of shut down. That's like me going to nine in stress. And then in, if I go to sixth in strength, quote unquote, I become like a real team player and I really want to include people and I'm way less self-focused and self-centered and all. That's like the traditional way of looking at the two. But you're saying there's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a good and bad side to both the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, the way I see it play out is sometimes like moving to six and and thinking, okay, well, everyone has ulterior motives here. So I'm going to just like try to f- be suspicious of everyone and try to figure out what's <laughs> happening or overthinking. Oh yeah, my gosh, overthinking. I'm like world-class overthinker. Same. And, you know, so I see the nine side, but I also see the six side, you know, the, the unhealthy side of six as well, 
or like the less developed side, uh, side of six. But so it's, I would say a lot of the Enneagram books that have existed before The Road Back to You were written like 1999, 2000, and even earlier. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, a lot of people love The Wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Rousseau and Russ Hudson, which I also love. I think it's a fantastic book. But even now, Russ Hudson, I think, doesn't teach the arrows exactly that way anymore. Mm. And so the first book that I read that introduced it the way that I teach it now is from Beatrice Chestnut. It's called The Complete Enneagram. And I also am in her certification program. And so... I have just like, once I, I saw it that way, I couldn't unsee it. Mm. I was like, oh, that is so eye-opening because for a while I wasn't teaching the arrows as I found with a lot of my one-on-one clients that it didn't quite fit. Yeah. And I was like jumping through hoops trying to be like, no, it's only in stress. No, it's only right. when you're growing. And then recognizing, oh, there's a lot more fluidity in that movement. Mm-hmm. That made more sense. Yeah. So I think... I don't know if it's edgy. I think that a lot of people have not become aware of that theory yet, though. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, the first time I think I started to become convinced more of what you're saying, my opinion about it was, you know, my I can, I'll use me and my wife as two different examples because she's a different number than I am. But she, from the beginning, she's like, I love your nineism. Like, and that's a part of me that she like really loves. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's like me at my worst, apparently. She's like, no, like it's like you protecting yourself in a lot of ways. It's like when you're super stressed or when you're overwhelmed or things are going crazy, you like have to have your nine because otherwise you'll just intense your way out of any situation. You'll do, 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 do. And your nine is kind of what like saves you from this constant trying to exert your way out of problems. And the same goes for her where she's a two and so her, she's really, you know, very relational. It's where she just wants to be around people and serve people and like take care of everyone except herself. But she goes to eight, which is the in- super intense, uh, no nonsense, no bullshit number. And it saves her. But, but it, uh, you know, on a lot of the older, older uh, takes, it's like, this is where she goes in stress. But in reality, it's like she needs her eight to like shut down all these things that like she shouldn't be focusing on. She shouldn't be giving to everybody else instead of herself. And it's like, when you see it that way, it's like, wow, both sides of this equation are really, really useful and important. Absolutely. And I think one thing, you know, with the type three example as well, I think something that's really beautiful about nines is that they don't believe that they have to earn their right to exist. Right. Mm. Like I think threes are very much out here earning their existence. Like, Yes. Trying to hustle for that. And, and nines are just like, I exist. You right. know? And they have that level of acceptance for that. And I think when threes can tap into that, that can be really a place where they can find true, you know, refreshment and rejuvenation. Mm. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, I'm curious too. I want to make sure to give some, some extra love to the other types. I'm curious, like, I know we went through and explained them. Could we maybe go a little bit deeper on a few of them. So maybe like, could you give me, I know that there are those goofy websites that have like famous people who are certain numbers or whatever. So we could use that as a reference point. I just want to help maybe someone who's new to this, get a visual. So maybe like, Mm. I don't know if you know, uh, if you've even thought about that before, but like, are there any like famous people who you would say like, Oh, they're probably a one 
or they exhibit traits of a six? Like, is there anything like that that you could give as more like concrete examples for people to kind of identify with? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways that I sometimes think about this is with TV characters. Yes. So for example, The Good Place. Yes. Great show. Okay. So I, one of my favorites, um, I think that there are some really clear representations of the types on the show. So Eleanor, I think, is an eight and has that very forthright, like, nobody's going to control me. Nobody is going to, like, take over me. Like, for example, um, in the first episode of the second season, there's this moment where she's like, I don't trust anyone, but I do trust myself. And I told myself to go find Chidi. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. And that, that thing where it's like, I don't trust other people easily, but I do trust myself. And like, just that deep gut sense of, I know what I'm thinking. I know what I'm talking about. I think that is really useful. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of how threes often are. Um, eights, sorry. So that's, I think that's a good depiction of eight with Chidi. A little indecisive about Chidi, which is ironic, of course. Um, <laughs> so I think that Chidi, you could make an argument that he could be a six. Um, so in a lot of ways, sixes can have that very much like, oh, I'm not really sure. I, I don't really know what I'm thinking. Um, in a lot of ways, I've seen people say that they think he's a five. Mm. I understand the reasoning. So the reason people would say that is like he's a philosophy professor. Like I've definitely had friends who are getting a master's in philosophy who are fives, right? Um, but I think it's really difficult to depict a five on a TV show mm-hmm. because so much of what is happening for fives is happening behind the, the scenes. Yeah. It's not, you know, like they're not verbally processing things like Chidi is, right? They're right. typically processing internally. So you would literally see somebody who has fully formed thoughts and ideas mm. come and bring them and present them and then move on. So I think that's my argument for why Chidi is a bit more of a six, but really looking for that sense of certainty and also in a lot of ways looking for a sense of structure and wanting to have some ideals to guide him. It can be a bit one-ish, but there are some subtypes of, of six that do that. Yeah. When we we think of Tahani, I would say, so she could be a three. I definitely think there's a lot of three there and very much like the way that she goes and talks about, uh, you know, the people that she knows and like <laughs> name drops constantly. However, I could also see her being quite two-ish, um, specifically the social subtype of type two. Um can be very much that way because very much looking at the social yes. status and, and climbing the social ladder, feeling that sense of belonging from who she knows. Yes. I love that. This is so good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's see who else we, I think that uh, Michael. Yes. He's my favorite. I think really. <laughs> yeah. I think that he could be a three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he really wants his boss's approval. I need to find so, which ones. I may, may have a mixed up. Michael, okay. good place. Ted Danson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of the other guy. Um, Jason. Jason. Yes, I love Jason. Yeah, Ted. This is Ted Danson's character. He has three energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of three there. Um, so, Jason, I feel like, well, okay. I think that he's quite seven ish. Mm-hmm. I love Jason. 
And I also just want to say that I think a lot of the time, you know, I've heard this pushback from other people as well. Like sevens can be quite cerebral and very analytical. Mm. Um, They are in the head triad of the Enneagram. So they use their mental faculties a lot. But when we talk about them in terms of TV characters, a lot of the time we just pick, you know, as Eleanor titles Jason, the hot dummy and say that they're a seven. And so I just, there are other shades of seven, but Jason, I think is an example, but, you know, staying in that sort of show universe, if you think about Chris Traeger from Parks and Rec, yes, I think he is a self-preservation seven. Mm. Um, So a lot of the time people tag him as type three, but I actually find him to be much more seven. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a really, that's a really good one. Cause yeah, I do, I do not identify. I think the, when watching, cause I remember watching Parks and Rec and Jay and I both where we're like, who are the Enneagram types of this? Uh, cause she really resonates with Leslie. No, my, so my wife is a social too. what you described earlier. And Leslie probably is a social too. Yeah. So they definitely resonate. And I was like, I wonder if Chris Traeger, who is that's Rob Lowe, right? Yep. Yeah. He had like three energy, but I was like, I don't know. He he has something going on, but not quite. Yeah. Yeah. And I do also think that what is tricky about TV characters is that depending on the season, they might be a different type, right. to be honest. Right. Um, yeah. They need that character arc, the change or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, and I think, you know, when we talk about people, we're not looking at, are there types changing? But right. in TV characters, of course. But also Alexis Rose from Schitt's Creek, I think, is also a seven. Um, yeah. I think Moira is a sexual four. Okay. Yeah. Um, These are deep cuts. I, think, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I watch all of the comedy shows on TV? Hey, I know all of them, too. I've seen them all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anytime something intense comes on, I'm like, nope, my life is too intense. <laughs> I need something funny. Yeah. Um, no, I think Johnny Rose is probably a one. Yep. I think that Stevie from Stevie Bud from Schitt's Creek could be a five. Mm. Um, okay. Very like deadpan, very has like a lot of information and a lot of random trivia, but doesn't feel the need to show it off. Very unimpressed. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I think that David is probably a six. Yes. I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> um, trying to think of all the other types. I think, okay, I, I think that um, Ted is a two. And Ted Lasso. No, uh, Ted. Oh, yeah, the, the from... veterinarian. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Would, would yeah. Ted Lasso be a two? I think he's a seven. Okay. Or nine. Okay. No, wait, do I, th- what do I, do I think? Nope, I think he's a seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think he's a social seven. But other people think that he's a two and other people think he's a nine. Mm. So. Okay, I could see all of them. And my per- it, my personal favorite is uh, Larry David is a consummate six or George Costanza from Seinfeld. Oh, yes. Very six. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I think this is a fun thing to talk about because there, it's purely subjective. Yeah. Like there are certain things, but you could really make an argument for so many different types for all of them. So it can kind of be fun to, to go down that rabbit trail. True. I think we're, we're, yeah, it's funny because earlier I mentioned like turning it into a parlor trick and like pointing out each other's side. <laughs> and that's literally what we're doing. Um, yes. So I think in that sense, it's good fun. But I do think like, again, like I know we talked about it earlier on as far as threes go, 
just like the real need uh, to be careful when we're discussing it. And also like when other people are kind of going through their personal journey with it. I'm curious. We talked a little bit about the direction. So numbers going from one to the other. Uh, usually they have or always they have two numbers that they go to in different emotional states. I'm curious how the Enneagram works in relationships. So for me, I'll start just by saying I feel like it's helped me a lot to give a lot more people a lot more compassion because it suddenly gives you this lens of like, oh, you just see the world entirely differently from me, but it's also like totally valid. I don't know. I'm curious like how the Enneagram can work well or not well in relationships. Yeah, I think it could be really useful because it gives you that sense of curiosity of, of really being able to take that other person's perspective. And of course, like there's an assumption that if you're in a close relationship with somebody, you might know their type. And I don't really recommend typing people like we just were with TV characters. I like TV characters. I think that's a fun way to think about typing, but I resist typing other like actual people right. because I don't want to pigeonhole people into a specific type because it's it's really their own self-discovery journey. But even if you don't know somebody else's type, I think what's really useful is using the Enneagram to identify what things are really triggering for you, what deep core beliefs are you holding on to that that are kind of getting tripped up. Even earlier, as we talked about failure, for example, I think, you know, when we think about type three, there's a real sensitivity to failure. Like any little bit of of a sniff of failure is is too much, mm-hmm. right? And for each of the types, we all have that extra oversensitivity to something. And so when we're in relationships, those things often kind of get triggered or, or touched off. And, and then we are in these conflict spirals or confrontation or those different sorts of things where it really stems from not understanding ourselves well or not knowing how we're feeling or not being able to identify what's actually happening beneath the surface. So I think it's really related to that mm. when we can use it in relationships to improve our communication. So even if I don't know somebody's type, I know, oh, wow, like that comment really triggered something in me, mm-hmm. you know, and then I can, I can deal with, with that how I need to. And I think that is really helpful for relationships. But when you do know your, you know, significant other's type or, or partner, or even like I've had people come to me who are podcast partners, for example, and they talk about how their different types show up and how they can use it in relationships. I think it's always useful to be able to imagine somebody else's perspective Mm. and to be able to kind of think how they might be experiencing something and how you are experiencing something and and really come to common ground with that. Yeah. Is it normal for, because, so I won't, I won't uh, say their name, but I have like I was speaking to a friend yesterday and they are a specific number and they just straight up told me they're like, I know I'm wrong for this, but I really do not get along with this other number. Is that uh, a normal thing to where if you are a certain type, say again for like us, like threes, are there numbers that we specifically are probably more vulnerable or at risk of not getting along with? Or is it not fixed like that? Is it not a fixed like, oh, you might be more 
it might be have more problems with this number and be more easygoing with this number? I would say it's really a personal thing. So I wouldn't say like threes can't get along with X, Y, and Z types. It's more like because of my background or my perspective or my family of origin or these different things, this type of person really rubs me the wrong way. Mm. And (laughs) for me anyway, a lot of the time that ends up being the same bucket, right? Like all the people in the same specific bucket. But I also think that normally what's happening is that when we don't like somebody or, or like an entire category of people, essentially, it's normally because they represent something in ourselves that we're intolerant of, or they represent something in ourselves that we don't see in ourselves that we're jealous of. That's a mic drop. That's true. <laughs> and that's actually what this friend said. They were like, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's because there are parts of me that are connected to this number and that's why they drive me insane. But it's never really yeah. about them. It's about me. You know, and that's a really, really healthy way to see it. But that's true. And being able to notice, like, I Mm -hmm. think that's what the Enneagram offers us too, is being able to be self-aware enough to notice it's not about them. It's actually about me. Mm. We might think it's about them, but anytime we have an opinion about something, I feel like it's normally an internal thing. And I might have to check that comment later (laughs) and think about that more. But, but I think a lot of the time it's like, no, there's something happening in me that I'm having a problem with, not in somebody else. Right. Right. Yeah, it's true. Maybe let's touch on the subtypes because I think that, yeah, for anyone listening, yeah, there are the nine types. Everyone, if you don't know what we're talking about, please go take one of the tests uh, Steph mentioned earlier. The subtypes is a really interesting thing though. And I, again, I'll just use myself as an example. So I, for a long time, did not resonate with, I resonated with all, like I felt this real disconnect because I heard what, People were saying about being a three, but then I would look at other people who uh, exhibited the traits of a three or identified as a three, and I felt very out of place. And I felt like I actually really don't vibe with these other threes, even though I felt like, whoa, we should like be on the same page. What the heck? We're like, we should be experiencing a very similar reality to each other. I come to find out there's like. <laughs> To make it more complicated to a listener, there are actually three subtypes to every one archetype of the Enneagram. So for there isn't just one nine, there are three types of nine. And there isn't just one three, there are three types of three. Will you talk about the subtypes really quick? Yeah. So basically subtypes are the combination of the Enneagram and another theory. So we have nine Enneagram types, which we've discussed. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. This other theory is called instincts, sometimes instinctual variants. But basically, the simplest way to think about it is that they are survival instincts. And we all have all three of them. So we all have all these instincts to survive, to make things work in our lives. But typically, one of them is driving the show more than anything else. So that's the one that it we call the dominant instinct. And that's the one that is fused with our type that makes the subtype. So keep that in mind as well. Um, So then the three instincts are self-preservation, social, and sexual. Sometimes people call it one-to-one. I prefer to retain the name sexual to describe it. So self-preservation is really about security and finding a sense of really like believing I am 
responsible for my own survival. So I need the resources, I need the security, I need to make sure that I'm going to be okay, and I will do whatever strategies I need to to make sure that happens. So that's self-preservation. Then we have social, which is basically if the herd survives, I survive. So they are thinking about belonging. They're thinking about um, power structures that are happening. They tend to work more in favor of the group rather than in their own interest. And they kind of have that more of that angle and, and maybe like a bit more relational. Mm. However, I found that there's also this, you know, shadow side of the social instinct that is like kind of like a God complex where it's like, I believe I know best mm. that can come out a lot. And then finally, um, sexual. So the sexual instinct is really about finding a spark of intensity and really like narrowing in on intimacy or kind of a zing with one specific other person or just finding that sense of intensity in life. Mm. It's really the the instinct that gives us like kind of an adrenaline rush. So there can be a desire to almost fuse with another person, but also a desire to push back against another person to kind of maintain a level of um, being able to draw people in and, and pull them mm. in. So there can be like this magnetism happening as well as like a push-pull dynamic. And so it's not about the group. It's it's about a specific other person or about finding the adrenaline and spark mm. more generally. So when you take each of those instincts with each of the nine types, you end up with 27 distinct subtypes. And so each of the subtypes and I will also say that it's not like, oh, I'm a social nine, but I'm also a four. It's whatever your core type is. So if you've de determined, okay, I'm a nine, then your subtype is either sexual, social, or self-preservation nine. Mm. So when, and there's like a distinct profile for each of them, it's it's much more complex than that. But um, that's kind of the overview. And I think that's one of the things that sets apart those two assessments I mentioned earlier, the IEQ nine and the compass. Enneagram assessments, those both involve subtypes, whereas a lot of the other ones don't. Mm. But it, there's just so much more complexity there. And I find that a lot of the time when we think about skeptics, people who push back on the Enneagram, a lot of the time they're not one of the subtypes that's most commonly discussed. And so they're not finding themselves on Instagram. They're not finding themselves on the descriptions of the types right. or even in a lot of books. And so that's why they don't resonate. Right. Yeah, I connect with that big time. And there are also... I found this out about uh, me. I think Josh, Josh Perez, producer, amazing person, told me this when he, when we did the the test he gave me was my so I'm a security or self preservation three, and he said that that is the not the anti subtype or the inverse subtype, the counter, the counter type. type. Explain what that is. Yeah. So the counter. So this is one of those theories that not everyone agrees with. Okay. <laughs> um, and even the subtypes, the way that, depending on the book, you're going to get a very different description, which I think can be challenging. But countertype essentially means that that subtype takes a different approach to the passion of the type. So when there's like this motivating force beneath the surface for all of us, that's called the passion. And so for type three, that's sometimes self-deceit. Sometimes it's called vanity, but basically for self-preservation threes, instead of saying like, okay, I'm going to externally show this sense of vanity and show this, like, even like this magnetism or pulling people in or showing how great I am externally, they are vain about not being vain. 
So they kind of turn it inward a little bit. It's it's a very different dynamic, but they tend to be the biggest workaholics. Um, I don't know if your wife listens to your podcast. But no, no sure it fits. I fit the bill. Yeah. So, um, but but what did the self preservation three tell you about yourself? Well, I always felt like yeah, it's a very complicated space for me because I think I've always felt like this real belief that I can achieve big, big stuff. And I think in one hand, it's a superpower of like, all right, I can see what's actually possible. Maybe when others can't, there's a, there's the shadow side of that too, to where if I don't reach those heights, then maybe I'm not as lovable or as worthy. But what's interesting is like, and I started noticing it, um, you know, in the workplace or other, you know, being moving out to New York City, where there are a lot of people who are just trying to get notice and attention, and a lot of things that th- there is a lot of three energy going on everywhere, and I'm and I felt so repulsed by a lot of it, and I was like, what is going on? I sh- I feel like I understand it so deeply, but I'm also very repulsed by it, and I want nothing. I don't want to be anything like that at the same time, and it felt very confusing. Because I was like, "What is going on?" Like, I feel like I totally get it, and I want attention too. I, I'm, I'm no different from all these people. I guess I just feel like I'm more coy in how I get it, <laughs> or something, or like I'm more, I'm, I'm less uh, thirsty in how I want to get my attention. You know, I'm not as quite. I, I don't know how my approach to it. And again, there's a lot of van- self vanity in what you're describing in those thoughts of like. I don't just want to like get famous. I want to do it my way and I don't want to do it in this really weird contrived third, you know, or whatever kind of things like that. And I think finding out my subtype is like, Oh, I'm actually like really insecure. Like from, for like finances is a big thing for me where I'm like grew up not having a ton of money. And so it's like, to me, it's a big thing. Like I need to provide for my family. I'm literally no one's coming to save me. And I've like, that's been my motto since I've been a little kid is like, no one's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. You have to go get money. You have to go take care of your family. You have to go provide, provide, provide all that stuff, which I think is very much a security thing. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that it it does make sense. And I find that in terms of the Enneagram, we see a lot more self-preservation and textual threes getting into the Enneagram because the social three is that type of three where the energy kind of grosses you out a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> It's like being more flashy, being more like, look at me go. But the self-preservation three is very much like, well, I don't want to be known and like achieve for just anything. Like right. I want to be known for the quality of my work and how amazing it is yeah. and how hard I've worked to deliver this amazing thing. And it's more of that angle. Whereas there are some people who it's just like, yeah, like let me be famous for just being famous. Yeah. And that's not the self-preservation. What thing. which are you? So this is like such a tricky question. I have struggled with it a lot. Um, so if you're out there and you're like, I can't figure out my subtype, it's fine. Like this is literally my job, and I sometimes get really confused by it. Mostly because I've been reading a lot of different books lately that that take up different perspectives, mostly because I'm trying to synthesize and integrate these different concepts and, and making sure that I'm bringing forth this really deep understanding. I'm fairly certain that I'm the sexual three, which is um, at least, you know, the way that Beatrice Chestnut and IQ9 teach it. It's about supporting specific others. So believing I am as successful as 
the people I'm helping are. Um, mm. And so, you know, really moving toward that, the sexual three tends to be more emotional and less overtly like flashy than the social three. So if you think of, you know, different types of energy, it's more the feminine energy versus the masculine energy, which could be more the self-preservation or social that has nothing to do with the actual gender, but like sure. the, the energetic um, gender. But yeah, so the so the sexual three, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Self-preservation is just right there though. So it's just like, it, it, which one is going to win out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I resonate with that too. Like when I think, because I'm so obsessed with like, I mean, that's why I do this podcast. That's why I do like everything. I do. I'm like obsessed with trying to uh, get people to do what they want to do and like have an awesome life. And like that, that's like what gives me energy in life. So and like when I'm at a party, you will not find me like being like this, like, oh, I'm like the life of the party or whatever, like meeting everybody, talking to everybody. You can almost always find me in a corner with one person for like two or three hours, just going as deep as possible. Like that's me in my happy place. So I definitely resonate with what you're saying. And it's also like, what are you interested in? Okay, cool. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build this business and then you're going to do this and then this and then this, and then it's going to be amazing. You're going to be so successful and so happy and like get out of this job that you hate. And you know, I've had that conversation too many times to count. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's too real. That's too real. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, maybe to like start shutting things down a little bit, maybe we should mention the wings really quick. Cause I don't think we discuss wings too much, but then like after that, maybe we can pivot into how you could see this working for creators because i think especially on instagram but all of the content you're producing i think there are a lot of creators who are also familiar with the enneagram or that could be benefit from the enneagram so i do want to kind of finish there and maybe how this could be helpful for for that person but maybe to start let's do a quick run over of what wings are and how those work as well yeah absolutely so wings are often what people notice when they first see the Enneagram because somebody will do like eight with a little W and then seven. And then people ask, what does the W mean? So that signifies a wing and it is an adjacent type that kind of colors or shades your core type. So the core type being eight in that example, and then seven being the wing type. Now, the way that I look at wings, because I always have to push back is that it is more of a growth stretch. So when somebody says I'm an eight wing seven, it's not necessarily telling me a specific profile of that person, the way that the subtype would, um, like the sexual subtype of type eight, for example, has a very distinct description, but eight wing seven, there could be a lot of different aspects of seven that that eight could be pulling Mm. from. So what it's telling me is that they've developed that wing, you know, that adjacent type, more than type nine. So that's why sometimes you'll see people saying like, oh, I have balanced wings or, you know, I I really lean into more of the nine wing versus the seven wing. Now, the the most important thing here though, just to to go out and on the internet and and not have people yell at you is that it has to be an adjacent type. So when you think of the Enneagram symbol, um, it really is a circle and it goes one through nine. So nine and one are next to each other, but nine and four are not, or nine and three are not. So you could be a nine wing one or a nine wing eight, um, but it just has to be that adjacent type. But 
To figure out which wing you lean into more, I would say look at the descriptions of those adjacent types and figure out, okay, which one do I resonate with more? And Alex, like you were saying earlier, you know, you pull more from type four. So you really see that show up. And I I tend to be the same way in a lot of ways. So one way to kind of grow then is to think, okay, how can I pull from this other wing then? How can I pull from type two? Or if you're an eight wing seven, how can I pull from type nine? And I really think that different seasons of life demand different things from us. And so that's one of the reasons why we see that shift and change. But, you know, you can you can learn to pull from the other side. Yeah. I have to ask, as an Enneagram teacher, being totally honest, do you die a little inside when someone's like, yeah, I'm a seven wing four? Or when yes, they're like, because I don't want to be an <laughs> asshole about it. And I'm also just like, oh God, I don't. I'm, okay. I know. I feel like an elitist asshole because I'm just like a nerd with it. And then what? Well, actually, that is not yeah. how that works. <laughs> Usually I'm just like, cool. I let it, I let it be. But for you, when it's your mm-hmm. job, I'm sure you're just like, well, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. So it just, you know, if I'm like at a party or something, I'm not going to be like, well, actually, because that doesn't make people feel good. No. <laughs> people don't like to hear that. And they're going to walk away being like, well, well and I'm never talking to them I again. fully agree. And there's already enough, like even people who are listening to this podcast are going to be like, God, they're saying all these numbers and it's just this annoying, weird yeah. system. And it feels very exclusive. If you don't like get it and if you haven't like kind of fallen into the rabbit hole, it can be one of the most annoying things to have like happening in the background so the last thing you want to do especially somebody who really believes in it as a system it's your literally what you're building your livelihood on you don't want to turn people off from it like right yeah and i have a renewed empathy for that because i recently started listening to a human design podcast and i was like i don't what yeah what words are they saying um and so i have to remember that this language that i speak so fluently at this point is not easy to pick up and it's from years of experience and and research you know for sure not just a quick podcast definitely definitely okay enneagram for creators yeah are you thinking about like how can they use it or yeah i'm thinking i'm thinking about if you can imagine you know someone listening who is either already creating whatever that looks like for them that could be cooking that could be writing blogs that could be making youtube videos that could be whatever creativity means to them just uh putting new things into the world but maybe maybe they've either hit a um a wall a little bit and they might want to use something like the enneagram to help them or uh maybe they're thinking about starting creating like are there ways that you feel like the enneagram can help creators specifically yeah um when i think about creators I naturally think about entrepreneurs because even if it's not immediately putting cash in your wallet, there is a way that creating anything, there's an entrepreneurial spirit to it. And so I actually, it's a a workshop that I've taught multiple times because I find the Enneagram can be so useful for entrepreneurship and, and creating things just because what we run into there is the same thing that we run into in our daily lives. Um, so I'd say, two different ways to use it. One is to look at your strengths, like use the Enneagram maybe to really observe what you're good at. I think a lot of people who are really creative, there can be a bent toward looking at what you're not good at yet because you're looking at the ideal and seeing, you know, even if it's art or if it's music, you aspire to this thing that you believe is possible and you're not there yet. Your skills haven't caught up, you know, whatever. So it can be really useful to help you look at, okay, where are my strengths? Like, what am I actually 
doing well? What am I actually seeing that other people aren't seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think for each specific type, there can be, you know, even more of a, um, a narrow focus, but then looking at what things are tripping me up. So if it's procrastination, why? You know, mm-hmm. what is the thing? Is it because I'm seeking perfectionism? Is it because I am putting other people's stuff ahead of mine? All these different ways that we tend to trip ourselves up just by operating unconsciously or in a way that's really unaware of what's driving mm-hmm. us. So I think that can be really useful. And using it as a space to get really curious about yourself and what's happening beneath the surface. And again, I, I think the Enneagram can open up that entire world or that entire different perspective, that entire different way of looking at yourself. And so if you are wanting to start something new um, or you're wanting to maybe even refound whatever project you're doing now, I think that's a really great time to do it because to look at the Enneagram and, and integrate it because you can start to see, okay, my natural bent might be this way, but to make this successful, I need to borrow some of this or some of this or or practice this other thing. And a lot of the times the things that we need to borrow or that we need to integrate are the things that are recommended most for our type for growth practices. Mm. So whether that's integrating more emotion or whether that's being more decisive or being less perfectionistic, um, all of those sorts of things can help. Yeah. I agree. I think there's a big piece of what you're saying too around like, in a in a way, it kind of opens you up to be even more authentic too. I think for me, I, uh, you know, I have a very entrepreneurial spirit. I've had it for a long time and that's not weird for threes. It's like a lot of threes feel that, but I've always felt like somewhat like, and maybe this is my forness or my, uh, self-preservation-ness or whatever, or maybe just Alex-ness, whatever it is. I've always felt like there's a little bit like inside me that's like, I can't, like a lot of the business stuff out there that like I follow and like, it can feel a little like dry and soulless to me in a way that's like, oh, that just means I need to go like fill that gap. Like that's my, that's Miracle morning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Like I've read all the books and I'm just, I still feel like, oh, there's just something not quite right here. And I think that I've realized over time, like, well, there's nothing quite right for me yet because it's my job to go make it. And I'm like perfectly made and to be Alex in the way that I am to go do the thing that I think would be cool. And I think everyone listening, you have your own very specific path that no one else has ever paved before. And I Mm -hmm. think that the Enneagram is, you know, in a lot of ways, very freeing to be like, oh, if I'm a certain type, um, to your point, like, oh, maybe I don't naturally have those skills to do A, B, and C, but I can go borrow and lean into those now, knowing that I'm not broken or there's nothing wrong with me. It's just I'm not naturally very good at those things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like there's a level of authenticity to be found in in your creative work when you use the Enneagram, right? Yeah. And recognizing it doesn't have to fit the mold. Yeah. And you can probably find somebody who will speak to that thing that you need more of. Mm. Um, so it doesn't have to be one specific podcaster or marketing coach or whatever. It could be a variety of things and it, it might not even be, you know, the specific mentor you think that you need, but you could probably find some concept that you, that really resonates with you that you can integrate and just, yeah, forget about 
the way that things should be and, and do it your own way. I think that's my continual lesson. I love that. It's an awesome place to, to wrap up. Steph, thank you so much for being on. I think this is an awesome primary introduction and discussion around the Enneagram. I'm curious where, where do you want people to go find you? Obviously nine types on Instagram, maybe plug, plug whatever you want people to go check out. Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at nine types co and, or check out my website, nine types.co. Both places, you'll find links where you can take an assessment and then you can download my self-typing guide, which will walk you through the entire process. Um, I also have a course for people who are like, okay, I'm, I know my type. I'm ready to dive deeper. Um, it's called Enneagram IRL or Enneagram in Real Life. And it just walks you through the entire thing. I mean, it's it's really in-depth. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. And I also have a podcast. So since you're already in your podcast app... Check out Enneagram in Real Life, the podcast. And I have guests on interview style and just get to hear from them and hear them talk about their types. I think that's the most powerful way to experience the Enneagram. Definitely. And I can vouch for the podcast I've heard. Really, really good. My favorite is your Instagram though. And I think that you do a really great job of making it both educational, but also really fun and like entertaining. Like you're, you do these really cool, like you'll ask people questions about like, Hey, eights, how do you feel when this happens to you? Or hey, fives, how do you respond when A, B, and C? And you get, you, you crowdsource all these responses and it's really well curated, really, really fun. So I highly recommend anyone out there go, go follow Steph at Nine Types Co on Instagram. Um, cool. And that's, that's all. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. Thanks, Steph. And thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to get more, please head over to alexsug.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll always get new episodes when they drop and last but not least this episode is edited and produced by the mighty josh perez if you're looking for help with your podcast josh is your guy he's a great producer and an even better human being so get in touch with him at justjoshperez.com i'll be back soon with another new interview so until then let's go make something cool